I am so excited to be here with you. I, I bring you greetings from Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I am honored to be here. It, coming here is like coming home. Uh, I, uh, I was born in this city, and uh, my mama went to Germantown High School. Uh, yeah, yeah, and she grew up on Penn Street over, over on Germantown. So uh, every time I get to come back here, it is always, always a good, good thing. I, uh, I even rejoice that I hear that you guys are thinking about planting a church in that area, and it's needed. Uh, my mom is the only one out of her whole family um, who so far God has seen fit to save. And um, her family, great people, but just as lost as can be. And uh, they need a good gospel-centered, disciple-making church that's going to preach the beauty and majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I am, I am deeply honored and appreciative of this church and all that it's doing. Before we get to our text, I, um, I grew up in a little, uh, little black Baptist church uh, on, on the south side of Atlanta. And our church didn't have much. We didn't have central air. No central air in Atlanta. Um, which means summertime was no joke. So if you came to our church August Little, little, little black Baptist church, no, no central air. air. What, what you would see would be a sea of fans. <laughs> little wooden sticks with, with a little piece of cardboard glued to it. On one side would be a picture of Dr. King. <laughs> and on the other side would be some advertisement for a funeral home. <laughs> anybody, anybody ever go to a church, church like that? Come on, go with me, somebody. I, I learned a lot in that church, but one of the things that they taught me, especially on occasions like this, um, is the church that I grew up in. So, so you'll forgive me. I don't know nothing about you. I, I'm just, the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. The way I was trained, the way I was taught, was to honor the man of God. I was not taught to worship him. I was not taught to idolize him. I was not taught to deify him, but I was taught to honor him. The Bible says that this man sows spiritual things into your life. He should reap material things. Um, so I, I come today with a token of honor. This is, this is the way we honor. And I won't say how much is in here. But our church so loves your pastor that they sent me here not empty-handed, but they sent me here with a token of appreciation, wanting me to let you know that there's a couple of thousand people below the Mason-Dixon line who have been blessed by his ministry. Now, now please, please hear, don't, don't, don't look at this through TBN eyes. <laughs> hear me, hear me. Some of us have so overreacted to the injustices that we are in sin and we don't even know it because we don't honor the man of God. The Bible says honor him. Honor him. So I, I want you to know, Pastor Mason, we honor you and we stand with you and we celebrate today. I'm struggling right now because I'm sitting there in worship and I sense the Spirit of God wanting me to preach something different 
than what I preached in the first service. And it's messing me up right now. Because um, I want to be good. And I want to be polished. But I sense there's a word for us for this gathering that's different from the first gathering. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I was sitting there in worship and I sensed that the Spirit of God has a word for this gathering that was different from the first gathering. I'm, I'm struggling right now because I, I want to pull you in real time to an area of sin in my life that I have not been delivered from. And I, I, I don't, I don't want to talk from... Um, been there, done that, I don't struggle with it. I, I, I want to testify as a fellow traveler of a struggle that I have in real time. And it is the struggle of pride. The Bible says God resists the proud. I, I, the, the image I have is is an offensive lineman breaking huddle and taking his three-point stance. And across the line is Reggie White. God says, Epiphany, when you as a community walk in pride, you line up against me. This body will not experience all that God has for it unless you learn to clothe yourself in humility. Paul deals with this in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. Look at it with me. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being, underline these phrases, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now the example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied, Greek word kanoo, himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is, at, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, for grace. 
there was a there was a mall that I used to go to in Atlanta called Shannon Mall, and um, Shannon Mall at the time they they used to have this art store, and this art store specialized in a kind of art. Hear it now, called anamorphic art. Anamorphic art. You may not know the name, but but you know what anamorphic art is. Anamorphic art is is a is a painting where the artist inserts an object on the surface that we see. But that same artist has also inserted another object into the painting that you can only see upon careful and close investigation, typically from an angle. So anamorphic art really has two objects. There's something that we see on the surface, and there's another object that the artist inserts that's hidden that you can only see if you look closer. Um, so it's, it's one of those deals, I, I would love to just peruse this artwork, and I would, stand, I would stand in this art shop, and I'd look and look and look. Most of the times I'd get it, but, but sometimes I would struggle, and I wouldn't see this, this hidden object that was inserted. I knew it was there, but I couldn't see it. So sometimes I would say to the employee or the worker, I, I don't see it. Where, where is it? To which they would always say with a smile on their face, look closer. That's how I want you to see pride. All of us have sin. There's, there's sin that we see. Name it. Gossip, slander, immorality, greed, lying. But the problem with many of us, what we don't realize is, we typically wage war with just the surface object. Not realizing there's another object feeding that object. And until you can lift up the hood of your life, until, until you can see the anamorphic painting and look closer at that thing that is feeding the other thing, you won't get too far in this journey of faith called sanctification. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, that, that great 20th century philosopher and theological mind, he says this in a moving passage in Mere Christianity. Listen to what he says. He says, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. The vice, Lewis writes, I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. According to Christian teachers, he continues, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that, Lewis says, are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So get what Lewis is saying, and it is thoroughly um, uh, supported by the scriptures. What feeds every vice is my, is my relentless, ruthless commitment to me. I, I am most faithful to my narcissistic pursuits. So let me just show you how this works. Pastor Mason, I, I, I just need to confess. My biggest lies that I tell are on Sunday morning. T typically, they happen right down here. Shaking hands, shaking hands. And someone will say to me, Pastor, I emailed you this week. Did you read my email? 
And there have been times when I've said, yeah. And as soon as I've said, yeah, my mind says, no, you didn't. <laughs> now, why did I tell that lie? It wasn't just about a lie. I told that lie because I bought into the thought that great pastors read all their emails. And I need you to think that I am great. So I lied, not just because of the lie, but I lied to, per, to, to perpetuate an image in your mind that I am great. Sex is never about sex. Sex is me saying I, I have needs. I have physiological yearnings. I know what God's parameters is, but I am going to fulfill me even outside of what God says. Gossip is never just about gossip. Gossip is my way of saying, I have an inside scoop on something or someone that you do not have, and I need you to know that I know. I, I want you to look at the anamorphic painting of your life and realize every vice you ever commit lurking behind the scene is you. You are relentlessly and ruthlessly committed to you. So I sat down. See, I don't want to be that preacher who just says, how can I take this and give it to them? I sat down. The week I was, I was preparing this message, some months ago, I sat down and I said, Holy Spirit, show me pride in my own life. He, he gave me a list of 14 ways I see pride in my life. I want to share that list with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm standing with you. Number one way I see pride in my life, I love to retweet myself. <laughs> I love it. Preaching at Epiphany, someone says, Pastor Brian did such and such. Boom! Twitterverse needs to know that. Hear me, I'm not saying retweeting yourself is pride for you. For me, it is. I'm uber private. It's hard to get to know me. If I just kind of investigate why, why am I so private? Beneath the privacy is control. Beneath the control is fear. Why is there fear? Because I'm fearful if you knew this about me, well, then you wouldn't like me. People pleasing. It's, it's the burden Pastor Mason and I are under is incredible. On Sunday mornings, there are hundreds of people who come to Fellowship Memphis, and, and many of them are, are making the decision, these hundreds of guests are making the decision uh, to join our church based solely on whether or not they like, well, me. Let me be self-reflective. Uh, leave a conversation, and you know, why did I say it this way, and I should have said it that way, and back and forth, I'll pull a conversation in and out, and I'll kick myself in the head, and, and a lot of times I do that because I need you to like me, easily offended. Now, I want you to write this down. It's almost impossible to offend a humble person. Almost impossible. Humble people don't hold on to rights. 
Humble people don't get bent out of shape when their name wasn't called to sing that solo. All they care about is the worship of God. So an easily offended person, a person you have to walk on eggshells around, is typically a sign of an incredibly narcissistic person. Entitlement. I feel like I've paid my dues, I've gone to school, I've burned the midnight oil, I've done the church planting thing, I've set up and I've torn down and I've done all that, so, so, so now I deserve certain things. I get a pass when the truth of the matter is, following Christ, you're always paying your dues. I find it hard to rejoice in the triumphs of others. It's difficult for me to rejoice with those who rejoice because I'm so stinking busy competing with them. Possessions. It matters to me that that's an alligator on my shirt. It matters to me the kind of shoes I wear. It matters. And it's not just mattering to me, but I need you to see what I have. Name dropping. Uh, sometimes I'll be in a conversation, I'll mention someone's name that I know. A lot of times it's innocent, but there are times in which I drop a name because I need you to know that I know them. Rejoicing in my calendar. Love the fact that I got invited to come to Epiphany and this great church and insensitivity. I can be incredibly harsh with people. People who are not gentle have a low view of humanity. I struggle to apologize. If my wife were here, she'd say amen. <laughs> I'll do something to offend her, and I'm sorry gets caught in my esophagus and vaporizes. Why is it hard for me to apologize? Well, that means that I did something wrong in my pride. Now, when you hear me, the biggest killer to marriage is not bankruptcy. The biggest killer to marriage is not infidelity. The biggest killer to marriage is pride. Relationships, I hate, I hate to admit this, I hate to admit this, I tend to gravitate towards the significant and don't have time for the least of these. If you've got a big name, if you've got a big church, it's easy to get on my calendar. It's pride. Sermon preparation and delivery. I spend hours every week at the workbench and wordsmithing and getting into the text and all of this. Why do I do this? I, I, I hate to admit this. I, I think many weeks is because I, I really want to bless the people and glorify God. But there are some weeks where I go way and beyond what I would normally do because I need you to say he's good. What about you? your list. So here's how I want you to view this message. This is not me doing this to you. It's me standing with you as one fellow me addict in a room full of hundreds of me addicts. 
I begin this message by saying, hi, my name is Brian Loritz, and I am ruthlessly addicted to self. Can we say that together? Don't call my name, so put your own name in there, right? Let's just, hi, my name is, and I am ruthlessly committed to self. That bit of a backdrop, I think we can receive what Paul says. Verse 1, Philippians 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of, and I had you underline it, the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He begins with talking about harmony and unity. It is a theme that the Scriptures over and over and over exhort us to be people who don't just tolerate one another, but who, who know the joys of deep-seated community and life with one another. So Psalm 133, and you know it, says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Jesus prayed for unity for his church in John 17. He says, I'm no longer in the world but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one. Even as we are one, writing to the Ephesians, Paul writes, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, which is over all and through all and in all. We are failing at this today. I believe every Sunday morning, God peers over the balcony of heaven and weeps. Because his people cannot get along. I'm not even talking about the major stuff. I'm talking we have, we have split off and splintered off over minor stuff. You got to immerse, and you got to pour, and you got to sprinkle. That church believes in tongues, this church doesn't. And we won't come together. Why is this important? Brian, what in the world does this have to do with anything, us being able to get along? you got to go to chapter 1, verses 29 to 30, in order to understand why Paul is on this harmony and unity kick. He says in verse 29 of chapter 1, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You know, you, you know what he's saying? There's a war out there. There is too much out stake, in, in, at stake out there for us to not get along in here. In fact, what Paul is saying, your inability to experience unity in here blunts your effectiveness out there. So I, I just, I, I just got to 
put it on the table. And I know this is not Epiphany's problem, but it grieves me. We got people at our church, at Fellowship Memphis, who don't get along with each other. So all of a sudden, they used to go to the same service. Now, one goes to another service, while the other goes to this different service. We're multi-site, and so sometimes people will fall out with each other, and they'll go to another location, while this person goes to another location, all in the name of Jesus Christ. Got attitudes. If the church of Jesus Christ would just do Matthew 18, if we would just be committed at speaking the truth to one another. So we, so we won't do that. And we get passive aggressive and someone does something to me I don't like and I begin to emotionally moonwalk from them. I, I used to all of a sudden not return texts and I don't do any of this stuff anymore. I'm busy now. The church is a laughing stock because we will not walk in unity. Your passive aggressive tendencies, your attitudes, your emotional distance from others. It brings tears to the Lord Jesus Christ. I understand there are situations when you will do everything that you can. That's why Romans 12, 18 is such a gift to us as best as you can. Be at peace. Let me ask you, have you done your best? It's a little friction between you and your roommate. Both of you name the name of Jesus Christ. Somehow, someway, Paul says, you don't fix that. That affects here. So here's what Paul is saying. Brian, what does unity have to do with pride? Here's what Paul's saying. Verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That term selfish ambition was a political term that was used as someone running for office, and they would lead with their own agenda. Ain't nothing changed. Paul says, do not lead with your own agenda. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Here's the whole point. Humility equals harmony. That's what he's saying. Or the flip side is true as well. Me kills we. Show me a narcissistic, me-oriented person. I will show you a person who doesn't have friends. Who's lonely. Who's isolated. I love the story of Muhammad Ali. True story, he's on an airplane one day, and they hit a little bit of turbulence, and the captain came over the PA system and says, look, we've hit turbulence, I need everybody to move to your seats, fasten your seatbelts. Flight attendant goes to her seat, but she sees along the way uh, um, Muhammad Ali hadn't fastened his seatbelt. She bends down in his ear so as not to embarrass him. Uh, Mr. Ali, please fasten your seatbelt, to which he responds, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> to which she responds, Superman don't need no airplane. Now, please... <laughs> Fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> you know, I love Ali. I love Ali. If anything's on Sports Century about him, I love him. But for all his endearing qualities, he's never known as a man of humility. Is it any wonder he's on his fourth marriage? I cannot enjoy a rich, wonderful relationship with my wife and lead with me at the same time. 
epiphany in your seven years. God's blessed you, but you will not experience more faithfulness, more fruitfulness, more reward until there is this coming together, a looking out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. It's exactly what Paul writes moving forward. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know what pride is? Pride is stealing and robbing what rightfully belongs to God, plagiarizing that and acting as if it's my own. It is spiritual plagiarism. That's why Paul would tell the Corinthians, I believe, what do you have that God did not give to you? Joe DiMaggio, great center fielder for the Yankees. I hate the Yankees, by the way, but you can't just put that out there. I just, I don't like the Yankees. Anyways, great center fielder. He went off to play, he went off to fight in World War II. Then he came back after being gone 18 months, two years, whatever. And so the Yankees fans were just going nuts. First game back, they packed Yankees Stadium. They crowded into Yankees Stadium. And, and, and Joe, before the game, decided to just walk out on the field, tip his cap. But Joe had a little son at the time, Joe DiMaggio Jr., who's like three years old. So he's carrying his three-year-old boy walking out into the field, and they're hollering, Joe, 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 Joe. And Joe DiMaggio Jr.'s three-year-old son looks at his dad and says, Dad, they're calling my name. We laugh at that. How dare a son take the praise due to his dad? That's what pride does. They're calling my name. What qualifies God to use you is not you. God forgive this new generation of preachers. I'm seeing it. They are so entitled. They think they are so deserving or whatever. If God can use a donkey, if he can use a bush, it ain't your degrees. It's about God and his glory. Now he says, here's the example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, underline it, but emptied, emptied, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If anyone got a right to say, they're calling my name, if anyone got a pass, it was Jesus. But he didn't. Now Paul says, live like that. 
Live like that. This is theological high cotton. I, 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 don't want to have time, I don't have time to get into all the intricacies of it, but Paul is very clear. Jesus Christ, fully God. Hypostatic union taken from the Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 451, gives us this incredible statement that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, in one person, without mixture. Stop thinking about it. You can't grasp it. It ain't like what Harold, in the, Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes sang. He ain't 50-50, 70-30. He's 100-100. At no point did Jesus Christ fail to be fully God. But verse 7 tells us he emptied, kenoo, the great kenosis passage. What does this mean? It is the voluntary veiling of certain attributes. Jesus Christ, when he took on flesh, voluntarily limited himself. For example, he could not be, he chose not to be omnipresent. Here's what Jesus could have done. He could have come, taken off the mask, proved to everyone, without a doubt, I'm God, and coerced us all into the kingdom. The closest he got to that was the Mount of Transfiguration. Where he says, I'm just going to show you a little bit. I'm going to let you see my exhaust. But he didn't. Instead, he took on the form of a servant. Isaiah 53 tells us, ladies, he wasn't even good looking. And he was willing to be misunderstood, mistreated, abused, did not utter a word, died so that instead of coercing us into the kingdom, he could love us into the kingdom. Now Paul says, live like that. What the kenosis fundamentally deals with is the refusal of Christ to leverage his status to his own advantage. But he uses his status for our good. I'm diamond status with Delta. That's nothing to be proud of. Flew 140,000 miles last year. That's nothing to be proud of. My elders are rebuking me as well as they should. But diamond status got a lot of perks. <laughs> Mainly what diamond status says is whenever there's an empty seat in first class, I get it. Because of my status, I get the upgrade. Now, this is a wonderful perk, except for when you're traveling with your wife. See, my wife has no status. She has no credentials. She has no points. And so for me to get the upgrade and enjoy first class while my wife is sitting in coach is not a recipe for a happy marriage. So here's what I've done. I've got diamond status. They'll give me the upgrade. So I automatically get this first class ticket because of my status. But I'll sit next to my wife in coach, which means I am sitting in someone else's seat. That person whose seat I'm sitting in will then come to me and start to bark at me and complain. 
you're sitting in my seat. To which I shut them up immediately <laughs> by saying, will you forgive me and take my seat in first class? <laughs> Hear me, I haven't lost my status. I've just refused to use my status for my own selfish benefits. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was in the first class section of the universe, took on flesh, hung out with us in coach so that we could get the upgrade back to first class. Paul says, live like that. Live like that. Don't take the blessings of God and merely leverage them for you. Take God's blessings and use it as a stage to bless others. (laughs) I want to pray. I want to pray. If you're here today and you're saying, Brian, as this message was being preached, Spirit of God was messing with me. My pride is just unleashed in my life. Maybe there's some relationships your pride is broken. But as we prepare to come to the table, a picture of humility. If you're saying, Brian, Holy Spirit is speaking to me about my pride. Would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. We sang that song during worship. If we can just play it, Oh, How I Love Jesus. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I I thank you that your word doesn't just tell us how to live, that we don't just serve a God who barks out orders, but we serve a God who says, look to me. That Jesus, yes, he's our Savior, yes, he's our Lord, but he's an incredible picture to us of humility in action. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are standing as a sign of confession and repentance, Lord God. God, our pride is so real, it is so incessant, it is so unrelenting, Lord God, that moment by moment, day by day, we're going to have to lean on your grace to experience the victory of the empty tomb. God, this is not about white-knuckling it or gritting your teeth and trying harder. This is a foe that we are absolutely incompetent in our own strength. But I serve a risen Savior. Greater is he who's in us than he that's in the world. And so, Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus, we would lean on your grace. 
that we would lean on your spirit, that you would take us from boasting in our flesh to boasting in our weaknesses, in Christ and Christ alone, that we would never be guilty of little Joe DiMaggio Jr. saying, they're calling my name, but may we deflect all praise back to you. So Father God, in the name of Jesus, Restore marriages because of a spirit-filled commitment to humility. Renew friendships because of a spirit-filled commitment to humility, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Father, for greater levels of fruitfulness for Epiphany as she walks in unity because this is a community that is not just looking out to their own interests, but are looking to the interests of others. And so, Lord God, we come to the table, that picture of a humble man who laid down his rights, who at any given moment could have called a legion of angels. But instead he said, Father, forgive them. We're saved by the humility of Christ. Now may we live that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for allowing